Hi, everyone. We've set up this Being an Engineer podcast as an industry knowledge repository, if you will. We hope it'll be a tool where engineers can learn about and connect with other companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. So make some connections and enjoy the show. And then, and then, here's the problem. We're going to solve the same problem again. I guarantee you're going to be, I'm going to see the same problems being talked about and solved that that guy, Ralph, a year ago, had already done this work. And he was a good engineer. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Being an Engineer podcast. Today we are here in the studio with Sean Patterson, who has developed an expertise in process development for electro-optical and mechanical engineering platforms. Sean has taken prototype engineering efforts and carefully improved upon aspects of their thermal management, method of assembly, and package design. Sean, thanks so much for joining us today. Hello, I'm very glad to be here. All right, so can you tell us uh, a little bit about your background? Yes, um, I started my laser career in uh, outside of Boston, Massachusetts, at a company that was designing the very first LASIK machine. And uh, this is before they were uh, FDA approved in the U.S. So about 1996, I started working there as a CAD drafter. And um, I uh, the engineers took a liking to me, and I knew not, not much about engineering and certainly nothing about lasers. But I never did much CAD drafting there, and I got pulled into the labs for um, laser testing. And do you want to know what a laser is? Do you want to see the, you know, they would entice me to come in the labs. They, they took a real interest in me, and I ate it up. I was in my uh, early 20s to mid-20s. So I got involved in lasers that way, and I excelled at that company. And um best friend of mine was a, was a, at Northeastern University as, for engineering himself, and he was interning there. And we were working on FDA approval and getting ISO approval and moving through all the um, steps to be ready to sell lasers that would uh, correct vision. And I, I did a lot of interesting projects there, and it really, it stamped engineering in my, in my you know, my DNA Okay, so Sean, you uh, you didn't just jump into engineering right away. Tell us a little bit about that journey, right? You you mentioned to me before we started the recording that that you kind of took some time to explore a little bit and figure out like w- what's out there and and what are you really going to enjoy? Absolutely. Um, if I had chosen to go to university at eighteen out of high school, I'm sure I would have chosen wrong. Um, I didn't know anything about engineering at the time. But I was mechanically inclined. Um, but I left, you know, home around the age of 18 or a little earlier. And um, I moved to Santa Barbara with my girlfriend. And then I hung out there, like, figuring out what I wanted to do and meeting friends and, you know, learning to surf and everything you do in Santa Barbara, really enjoying it. I was there to have fun, but I was also cognizant of I'm here to gather intelligence to help me get to a career in life. And I didn't know what I wanted. So living there, I took some CAD classes when Autodesk was making AutoCAD. And this is before SolidWorks, many decades before SolidWorks. But in any case, um, I took architecture. So I was drawing, you know, uh, residential architecture and building architecture at uh, the City College, Santa Barbara City College. So I did that. And then I had an opportunity to go to Boston and sell all my stuff and just go. And I had not built a family yet. I had no wife or children. So I sold all my stuff and I did that. Nice. What a great adventure. Oh, I was out for adventure for sure. So So you mentioned, uh, I think it was at Boston where you first started learning about lasers. Some of the engineers there kind of took a, a liking to you and started introducing you to different technologies and things that they were working on. What do you think it was about you that um, encouraged them or made them feel comfortable pulling you in and, and wanting to share some of their work with you? I think it it may have been my youth and my 
California-ism because they were on the <laughs> East Coast and they thought I was the cool guy. I was a California kid. Ah, uh, okay. Is, you know, the early 90s to mid-90s. And um, they probably, I think they hadn't even been to California. So I was just like this kind of cartoon character from California mm-hmm. almost. And uh, they add, do you surf? And oh man, even, <laughs> in Boston, not many people surf, even though they're on the water, but yeah, it's just the wrong kind there. of beach. <laughs> yeah. So in any case, um, they took a look, a liking to me. They found me to be a cool guy. I was, I don't know what I had, maybe a cool factor or something. But anyway, these guys were family men and older engineers. Um, I was out for an exciting time and uh, we all really meshed really really well personality wise even though they were from the east coast and i was i had never been to the east coast so i was just learning about the boston attitude accent um they're different than californians and californians can be lackadaisical and bostonians they keep relationships a long time and when they say they're going to show up they show up and they, you know, you become someone's friend in that area. You're like a friend for life. So we went river rafting in Maine. They invited me. I was stunned. And at this company called Summit Technology in Waltham, Massachusetts, um, it was just, uh, I was the, my first engineering job. And I couldn't believe it when I saw my printout of my, my work statement said that I was in the R&D department. I worked in R&D. I like, wow. <laughs> cool. I work in R&D at a corporate company. It was a startup, but it was a, it was a funded one. Uh, Well-funded, I believe. And um, I, you know, that, a lot of things were defining me at that time. And I was, look, I had been looking for definition. So this was, I was running with it. That's awesome. So you, you got into lasers and, and optics and uh, that's kind of been uh, a theme throughout your, your career give us a sense for how how do engineering teams use optics professionals like you like what are some of the problems that you have solved or or that you could solve because uh, i think a lot of engineer engineering teams have not worked with any optics personnel and so like how do we work together what, what do you do well i Luckily, stumbled into optics and laser systems in Tucson, Arizona. Um, well, I did it there when I came out west to get an engineering degree. And so um, I did three years of an optical sciences and BS at U of A, University of Arizona in Tucson. and um, Which is known for optics. Optics Valley and yes, strong optics program. And um in any case, I did um, three years of that degree, and then I, as I say, I fell into lasers. I fell out of school and into a startup um, engineering laser company called 4D Technology, and they were making a new type of interferometer, which an interferometer is a metrology device that measures high-technology surfaces, can measure ICs, you know, integrated chips, um, silicone wafers, telescope mirrors. It gives you the topology down to nanometer levels. And um, it uses the laser to do that and optics and a whole optic train and polarization of the laser and all these qualities. But I was leveraged for my persistence, my creativity, kind of my free spirit, I think, because I had to do some weird stuff there. I had to interpret a lot of weird things with these. Um, when I say they were um, approaching um, this metrology device in a new way, I mean it had been done temporally, temporal, so with time. They were doing it spatial, meaning time didn't matter. And with these delicate instruments, very sensitive to vibration, if you need to take, you know, 12, 15 microseconds to take a measurement, you can get vibration introduced into the measurement, which lowers the resolution. But if you can take it all instantly, you you can take it on a vibrating table. So they had developed and really mastered a way to mask the CCD cameras that were taking the images. Pixel for pixel, they would put polarizers. And so every 
block of four pixels became a super pixel and it had the different angles of polarization to add up to 360. So 90, you know, 120, 180, 360, all the way around. So instead of moving the test piece with respect to the reference, you could leave them steady and not have to wait for it to move forward or move back, but they could be steady and the information would be caught in the super pixels because it turned the polarization of the light. So it, it accomplished the turning of the, you know, two, two pi theta turn um, in instantaneously. So you had lower resolution than a megapixel camera because it wasn't megapixel camera, but divide by four and that's how many pixels you really had. Yeah. But then, of course, we bought a four megapixel camera so we could have a one megapixel image. But it, getting those to, to line up and there's more fringe patterns and there's gluing that mask on the CCD and getting it to be a sellable product was very challenging. And I was one of the few people that could do it. Wow. Uh, okay, so this gets into another question I have, which is what are some of the tools that you use as an optical engineer and even uh, are there some basic optics tools that engineering teams out there who maybe dabble in optics every now and then might want to consider adding to their arsenal? Um, you know, in, in optical sciences, it depends on what you're, what you care about, what you're looking for. If you're looking for beam quality, um, you're going to use, you know, energy detectors and you're going to use setups with XYZ stages and, you know, mechanical engineering plays very heavily in laser science. And there, there are spectrum analyzers if you care about the wavelength, how, if you care about how um, c c concise the wavelength is or how, how narrow your spread of wavelengths is in a laser, because people will tell you that a laser has a single wavelength and that's what makes it a laser. It's coherent. It's one wavelength. It's rarely one wavelength unless it's a very, very expensive laser because there's a little spread of, wa of, of, of uh, frequencies there that are, if it's a green laser, there will be just a bunch of green frequencies and it's still a laser, but it has a spread of wavelengths. It has a line width. If you look at it on a graph, it's not just exactly 532 nanometers like anything. You know? So, um, but the, the uh, lasers... So if you care about wavelength or you care about wavelength spread or you care about beam quality, um, there is a lot of beautiful things to see in laser science. I mean, you're working, you work with crystals when you make solid state lasers, lasers that we pump and energize crystals and the crystals will take a certain wavelength and then double it or half it. And now you go from the invisible regime to the visible. So now you've just taken infrared and made it bright green and with these crystals and they are doped with impurities you know to get this behavior out of them um the way a laser and a laser based on solid state crystals works is fascinating fascinating so let's let's get into like the the basics of a laser okay what is a laser and like what are the core components of it how does it work and this could quickly go over i think most of our heads so like try and keep it kind of basic yeah it's it's pumping electrons with energy to excite them and getting them to an excited state and they have orbitals that it's like stair steps it can only be on one step or the other there's no in between so you energize um so you have to put energy into a laser cavity to energize the lasing medium and these electrons valence electrons will jump up to higher energy states and then the correct photon will come by and it will stimulate a drop in energy of the electron and that drop the, the delta of energy there you've just lost some energy well it doesn't go nowhere it go, turns into a photon that matches that introductory photon now you have two this happening, you know, millions to, I don't know, billions to trillions of times inside of a laser cavity with many atoms and electrons, you get a cascading effect and you get what we all love this word, gain. You, you, so you get laser gain and then you get lasing and you have lasing action where now your cavity is bouncing between the two mirrors that 
that terminate the cavity. One will be an output coupler where you will get the output, of course. And then the other is a high reflector. So between your output coupler and high reflector, you keep the energy inside until the gain is high enough and you're pumping it with electricity. And so there's an electrical to optical efficiency. You're going to put in more electricity than wattage that you're going to get out, of course. But what happens, some of it goes in heat and then you know, it's, it's this conversion that's happening. You exceed the output coupler when you finally get enough gain. Now you have a laser beam leaving the cavity. And now you work with that. You know, how, what's your energy distribution? Are you Gaussian, which means nice and warm in the middle and cooler on the, on the, on the outside if you're looking at it radially like a cross-section? And that, that's, you're not going to get that at first. You know, you're going to get um, wobbly, you know, looking beams and then you got these different modes inside of a laser that will take over and it will want to do this on this mode, which is maybe the, if you were looking for 532 nanometer wavelength, you might get 540 that wants to laze, but that won't laze as efficiently as 532. If you can get it down to 532 and you got to use temperature, you know, thermal dynamics, um, crystal placement, Alignment is super duper important in these lasers. And the ones I was making were tiny, tiny, like a, a pinto bean. Okay, so I'm using pick and place machines um, that, you know, can place these tiny one millimeter cubed um, crystals or maybe one millimeter, you know, squared by, and then it's longer. So a longer, maybe maybe five millimeters long six millimeters long, these different crystals, and then a very tiny diode pump, which is the initial energy input. You pump these crystals, they do their magic, you get laser output. Wow. I, I don't think I've ever actually heard an explanation of what a laser is, or if I have, it's been a long, long time. Uh, all right. This is maybe a silly question, and it might open up a whole can of worms here. Why don't we have really cool laser guns like in Star Wars? What's the, what's preventing us from getting there? Laser guns. Yes. Um, we have lasers <laughs> and they can be in the form of a gun. I mean, you can point a laser across the parking lot and burn a hole in the side of a car with an, a hot IR laser, infrared laser, 1000 nanometer wavelength or, or somewhere in there before you get to far IR because then the, the frequency is kind of lazier and, and slower, um, how fast it's, it's, it's um, oscillating. So why don't we have it in like a hip holstered gun, like in Star Wars? Is there just, there's not enough energy density in, in uh, our... Mm, I see. It, um, you could have that and it, it exists. I mean, I, I don't think people want to carry that around, you know, like you carry around a <laughs> firearm, but... Um, <laughs> To, to equally dangerous to yourself maybe yeah it's um <laughs> it would be pretty dangerous and you could make one that pulsed so it would send a pulse like a bullet would is a single you know a single um projectile you could send a single pulse that's so loaded with energy and then pulse 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 you know again and again like a machine gun i'm sure that exists i just i go on youtube i see people burning their skin with blue lasers or popping balloons yeah. or, you know, lighting things on fire with lasers. Blue is a very high frequency and the, the last high frequency you can really see with your eyes, then you get to violet and ultraviolet. But those high frequencies have a lot of energy and the red will have less energy and the infrared will have even less energy than that. But here's the thing about lasers, a watt laser output of a watt, a joule, a watt, that is much more powerful than a light bulb of when you think of watts of a light bulb. You know, no one buys a one watt light bulb because you can't see anything with it hardly. But a one watt laser will burn through your leather couch, you know, and if you focus the beam or not, you'll get even more power density. Yeah. But, you know, lasers dissipate in air. They, they start, you know, if you send a collimated beam, because I, I, at the U of A, we were, we made tripods and we had lasers on top of buildings, going from building to building across the campus for experimental stuff. I was in the optical sciences program. We'd be up there at night with red lasers and pointing to a, a receiver across campus and trying to make sure we could hit it and these types of things. And we could 
column or beam, by the time it got there, it had spread out quite a bit. And so the energy density is less, right? And so it's hard to keep that on a long distance. And the solution is not to focus the beam a little bit and think that it's going to spread less. It just it kind of doesn't really work that well. But um, smaller, tight beams, and this is where beam quality comes into play. So as I said, what were you looking for? You're looking for wavelength adherence or beam quality or, you know, for the tools you want to use in your lab, you do need a spectrum analyzer because you want to know the, the spectrum of wavelengths. Some lasers can put out two wavelengths, you know, and um, I've seen that in uh, fiber optic lasers. Uh, Raman laser um, can put out, you know, yellow and green at the same time. Um, but in any case, yeah, these... Um, Lasers as weapons are probably best left in the military's hands. <laughs> I'm sure the military has done deep research into how lasers can be weaponized. And the fact that we don't have laser guns like Star Wars probably says that, that there's got to be some kind of like, you know, physics-based limitation, right? Or, or maybe, um, maybe a normal like bullet gun is just every bit as good as a laser gun. So why spend the money to develop a laser gun? I don't know. Yeah, there's... Um... I think there's a laser system that keeps track of how, how far away the moon is. Okay. Okay. So that's a perfect segue into this next question, which is a, a lot of people, when they hear lasers, they might think about like cutting or burning with lasers. What are, what, of course, there are far more uses for lasers than cutting or burning. What, what are some of the other uses that uh, lasers are commonly used for? I can tell you one that's pretty interesting is... um. The crystals I mentioned earlier, they get hot and you don't want to have an active cooling system if you can avoid it. You would like them to be passively cooled. So you need a heat circuit. Well, lasers can be used to metallize the bottom of a dielectric or the sur a surface on a dielectric crystal to metallize it. Usually gold will be the, the choice of metal, but then you will use a laser to adhere this metal to one surface of the crystal and it would be the bottom surface so that you can weld it or solder it to a metal base. Now you're going to have a heat circuit. You're on your way to controlling or managing your thermal, you know, uh, increases and stuff. So, so me uh, lasers can metallize dielectrics and then you can solder them to things. Very cool. All right. Well, let me take a, a brief break here and share with the listeners that teampipeline.us is where you can learn more about how we develop or help medical device and other product engineering or manufacturing teams develop turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines to characterize, inspect, assemble, manufacture, and perform verification testing on your devices. And we're speaking with Sean Patterson today. Sean, what, what, um, what are a couple of the biggest failures that you've had in your career? And, and what have you learned from those experiences? It's hmm. <laughs> a good question. Um, I've, I will, I'll go back kind of in school at University of Arizona. I struggled a lot um, with the speed of which, I know, 400 years of engineering and science is being thrown at you. Um, I struggled with wanting to slow down and absorb it instead of week to week, we're on to the next, we're on to the next. It's electromagnetics and physics of this type and a physics of another type and differential equations and high math and Calc 4 and I don't even remember Calc 1. Um, still my identities and just going so fast. And I had a more romantic view of what getting a degree would be like. And um, it I wanted to know about the scientists themselves. I mean, I read about Ampere and Volta and these scientists that developed, you know, so many of the rules we use, Maxwell. And um, in any case, you can, I, so it wasn't like that. So I, I really struggled there. Um, but, you know, I, I, as we all have done or people who've tried to get an engineering degree, it's, it's, it can be tough and you're up late at night and you're pulling your hair out and you're, you're sweating for the tests and you're wondering if you know everything and you, you know, you shouldn't be studying up to the last minute because that means you're not prepared, but you're going in and you only got you to count on yourself and you do your best, you know, and sometimes you get enlightening moments during the test and 
my test, some of my tests were three hours long and, um, three to four, maybe. So in any case, I, I struggled at university, but I also learned a lot. And one of the things I'd learned is that learning calculus and these types of mathematics are not so you can then get, be an engineer some years later and pull out paper at your desk and say, oh, I'm going to write this integral. I got a problem. I'm going to fix it here. I'll just put it in an integral and solve this line integral. Oh, there we go. 4.7 feet. Great. That's what does it. You never, you don't do that. Why you learn this math or why I think I learned it was to help you think analytically. It helps, it teaches, taught me how to think about things and how to just delve deep into it and get, get into it. So I struggled there. And then I had, um, I had been trusted a lot at a company I worked for, ADE Phase Shift, which I think was just called Phase Shift at the time. But um, this was in Tucson. And I was entrusted with building the uh, new 12-inch aperture, which was very large for this machine that used to be 4-inch aperture. We were making a gorilla-sized um, version of this great interferometer that was called a Fizeau, after the scientist Fizeau. And um, it was an interferometer inside. It. They were nested three interferometers to kind of build up that beam path to get to the output that was three times larger diameter beam coming out to measure big surfaces, uh, large telescope mirrors and things. So I was entrusted with building it. And I did my best for several weeks. And I, I really felt great about um, the trust they put in me. And after I, when I finished it, and to me, it was perfect. And I dotted all my eyes and crossed my T's. Uh, in quality testing, it, it came out that my beam quality was bad and giving bad results and the software was not interpreting the maps right and I had misaligned it somewhere. And in lasers, the next word you're ever always going to say is alignment. Laser systems, alignment, alignment, alignment. It can improve efficiency. It can polarization and alignment together. You're working with these things to really pass through all the doors in the optical system cleanly and then get your output that you want. So I had fouled up in the alignment and I, it was the first off. So, you know, and I, I was a lone wolf on this project and I love that they let me do that, but it failed through final test and it was still 90% there, but they sent an engineer in to fix it and no one said anything to me. And it was, it really felt weird. I felt like an outcast and I've, I, I, I kind of in a roundabout way, I found out that he was sent in to fix my work and he fixed it. And then it went out to probably NASA or somebody a big, a very important uh, uh, customer. And no one ever talked to me about it, and it was just strange. You know, life goes on, but I felt um, a little downtrodden about that or, you know, crestfallen in that I was really, um, had built a reputation, and I was my reputation for what I could do there. And I wanted to impress the leader of that company, who was Chris Coleopolis, and he was from, the, he was a professor at the U of A, and then he as he told me, he got tired of seeing his students go off and start businesses and optical sciences and make more money than he did as a professor. So he said he started a phase shift technology in Tucson. And uh, this guy was a maverick and a really strong one at that. I mean, this he was he is really a, a great leader. Um, and anyway, I knew him personally. It was a small company, so you could know the top you know, very easily. And, um, I felt like I let them down. Well, thank you for sharing such a, a personal story. How, like you mentioned that it felt like maybe they kind of circumvented you. Right. How, how would, if you had a chance to go back and kind of relive that time, what would you have said or, or how would you have requested leadership to, to handle that situation? Because I, I imagine there are leaders, engineering leaders listening right now to this episode who maybe are dealing with similar situations and maybe they don't know the best way to handle it. So how would you have preferred that situation be handled? I just would have liked to have been um, included in the, you know, the, the um, 
failure analysis, the FA. I would have really liked to have been included in that. I would like to have been shown the bad maps it was making. I would have liked to have been held accountable, but I wasn't. I wanted to be held accountable. And th- therefore, or ergo learning, right? But it, it wasn't handled that way. Yeah. Have you had any opportunities in your career since then where maybe you were on the other end, right? And, and maybe you were like supervising or, or coaching someone else and you had the opportunity to, to like correct uh, s- some other engineers or technicians' mistakes and, and help them learn like what's the right way to do this? Yeah, I have. I've, um, I've had to bring people and show them their mistakes before and, and people with more degrees, uh, degrees that I don't have, you know, and um, engineers further along in their career, I've, you know, everyone can do, um, create a mistake and do something wrong. And I, sometimes it doesn't matter who digs up the root cause, Yeah, the root cause. But um, I have, and I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's not easy to tell someone, you know, they made this mistake and come look at what you did. Um, and then, it depends on the personality because they can have excuses right away or they yeah, can be right. all ears and they want to know how, what they did wrong and they can let you just be the authority and show them this happened, this happened, I found this and you forgot this and, you know, we we need to, I, you know, and you, and you can't go to the point, it's work. So I can't go to the point of why did you forget that? You know, it's almost like asking, are, are you here? Are you paying attention to your job? Um, it's a, you got to broach it, you know, in these certain kind of ways. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I love that, uh, you use the phrase, I wanted to be held accountable. That is such a great attribute of strong engineers, right? We don't want to be let off the hook necessarily. We want to learn from our mistakes and that's a really important behavior. Um, along those same lines, Based on your experience, you know, the past 20 years, whatever, how have you seen engineering teams mess up product development? What are, what are some of the common mistakes or problems that, that we make as engineers? I would say one thing would be uh, exit interviews. So when people leave the team and there is no one in charge of retrieving their lab books, their computer directories, their paper in their office, their posters, their everything, and compiling it into back into the, the rest of the people that are still here. Hey, Jim, do you need these graphs? Because, you know, Ralph left and he, we, he made a bunch of this. He did a bunch of work here. No, that, I've not seen that done very much at all, and I've never seen anyone in charge of that. And then the lab books get left. Somebody cleans out the cubicle. The next guy comes in and I don't know where the lab books go. And then they may be given to someone and someone puts them in a drawer somewhere. And then, and then, and then here's the problem. We're going to solve the same problem again. Now that Ralph already solved, we're, I guarantee you're going to be, I'm going to see the same problems being talked about and solved that that guy, Ralph a year ago had already done this work. And he was a good engineer. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I'm going to do a little plug right now for something that we've been working on. It's uh, a platform of tools, education, and community for engineers. And the whole idea behind this whole thing is we've had hundreds and hundreds of years in engineering to figure out the wheel, yet we continually reinvent it as engineers. And I think that's a, a source of frustration for, for so many of us. Um, chances are what you're working on, someone else has worked on something very similar, if not identical to that. Some company, some time period, somewhere, someone has probably done something very similar. So why can't we pull all that information into a single repository where it's easy to find and stop reinventing the wheel? All right. So that's my, my diatribe. I'm, I'm done off my soapbox now. But anyway, I, I agree just so much with uh, what you said there. Um, what skills do you think the best engineers have? Uh, don't panic. Mm, okay. 
um, I've had bosses and higher ups that do that and it's never, you know, productive or it doesn't add anything good. And, um, I've, I've had to deliver really bad news to my bosses sometimes and sometimes late at night before, uh, customers are coming to see if they're going to buy our startup. Like Texas Instrument was, Texas Instruments, TI, uh, was coming to buy our, maybe buy our green laser program at Compound Photonics. And uh, that would have really been great for us because we were seeing some investor fatigue as a startup. And we had been several years into the game and not made a profit. We were pre-revenue, as they say. And um, the night before they're coming, the big wigs are coming and two of my demos, my laser demos down in the lab are not working. They stopped working all of a sudden and they were the most impressive ones that would have really maybe tipped the scale in our favor. And I have to go up to my boss and give him this really bad news that I've troubleshot it six ways to Sunday and I can't get this thing to work and we're out of diodes or we only have three other good ones and, and we're scrambling and can I take that crystal off of that other laser and weld it to this one tonight at 10 p.m. to make it work? And I don't even know if that's really a surefire fix. So in any case, this man, he would just... I'm giving him the worst news that I can give him. <laughs> and he's saying, okay, what temperature were you running at? Um, what, what are the amps? Did you save the data? Um, which oscilloscope are you using? Um, let's go downstairs. And it was a downstairs lab. So let's go down and take a look. That was his approach. Not holy, you know, expletive, yeah, yeah. this expletive, that. <laughs> and, and this is a, a company killing prospect. And wow. what the hell are we going to do? And, yeah how did this happen and damn it this and oh, and then storming down to the lab no this guy i won't say his name but he was one of my best uh, mentors and bosses that's amazing well speaking of tough projects what are one or two of the most challenging projects that you've worked on challenging um Working with water systems can be really challenging and water cooling lasers that are going to go in the field. Um, I, I worked on, um, at NP Photonics in Tucson, I worked on a laser system that would be drug along the ocean floor in the North Atlantic to look for oil. So these are fiber optic lasers and there's some 64 of them in a box and they're, they're going to have all their tentacles down fiber optics. And they're going to be drugged by this enormous, you know, uh, oil hunting ship in Norwegian, Nor Norway, or somewhere in the North Atlantic Sea Ocean. And um, this system had to go underwater, but it had to be water cooled. And the lasers had to be, you know, all these lasers together had to work in sync. And this was one of the times where a salesman overpromised um, in order to get us a sale and came back with this really wild idea. And our engineers worked on it, modeled it ASAP, kind of running fast, working nights and weekends to put together this um, ocean floor investigating laser system. And I was new to electronics in a sense, and I really realized I had to really hunker down on soldering and test and soldering is not trivial at all soldering is very important and doing it right is very important and the same physics that come up with anything is um as far as thermodynamics and things are really important in good solder joints and all of these things when one solder joint fails you're done i don't want to uh, poo poo anyone but a lot of graduated laser uh engineers do not know how to solder anything and they're Horrible Raising my hand here. <laughs> okay, okay. So I, I've taught engineering, uh, groups of engineers how to solder and how to correctly um, splice wires and, and how to make good solder joints and, and all of this stuff and methods and things like that. But in any case, I we were doing a new project and this, our company was, you know, really, it, it adds to the excitement and the impending peril of, uh, if we don't get this money, you know, and sell this project and get it there on time and it's got to work when it gets there and it doesn't, and it, even if it works when it's here, 
you know, to say it's going to work when it's there, these, it's, it was the first one we built. If we didn't have any prototypes of this, we're sending them the prototype and kind of acting like this is a product. A product, a prototype is not a product, okay? <laughs> you don't go to Best Buy and, and, and pull electronics off the shelves that are prototypes to take to your house. So in any case, um, a very challenging product uh, project and time intensive and a lot of new technology and software, test systems, uh, failing lasers, fiber optics, um, temperature controls, stopping water leaks, just water's a crazy, when you're trying to contain it and tell it what to do, water pushes back. <laughs> Probably like the understatement of the year, water pushes back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, what, what's a tool that doesn't exist, but if it did, would dramatically accelerate the speed with which new products can be developed? And this can be outside the realms of what's physically capable, or at least what engineering and science know to be physically capable yeah there you know we are in a everyone probably says this but we are in a modern age of toolage and software programs and modeling um, capabilities today 3d printing has enabled geometries that you just can't do with a lathe or a, a cnc i mean you can't cnc a sphere that's hollow in the middle with a lathe you have to make two halves but you can 3D print that. So in any case, we have a lot of tools. We have a lot of modeling, FMEA and stuff. Um, so we have a lot at our fingertips. But if I was, you know, a tool, what do you, well, my headaches have always been rooted in failure analysis, FA and root cause. Um, so I would make a, I would ask for a magic machine that could scan a system like Star Trek and find out which little tiniest little component in a circuit is failing and why and fix it. There you go. All right. And be well, certain. We've brought up Star Wars and Star Trek now. So I think our, our work done, uh, our work is done in this engineering podcast. Okay, <laughs> right on. All the basics have been discussed. Right. Uh, uh, actually, I do have a couple more questions before we, we wrap this up. The first one is, if you could write a short sentence or a phrase on a billboard that every engineer in the world would see, what would that be? Um, I what comes to mind is a sticker I used to have on a, the. Um, I had a chart in my cubicle of the uh, electromagnetic spectrum from cosmic rays to radio waves, and the sticker said um, 186,000 miles per second. It's not just a good idea; it's the law. Physics is a thing. Yes, sir. <laughs> So that's not an original thought of mine, but there was also a woman that used to wear a shirt that, and it said on the front, it just said, get automated. I like it. Hey, that sounds like a plug for pipeline. Get automated. I love it. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, so specifically within the context of your role as an engineer, what is something that brings you joy and conversely something that frustrates you? I guess you already talked about failure analysis, but maybe there's another one out there. There is. Um, I've worked with people that when we have some piece of equipment that we don't even understand, maybe we bought a new spectrum analyzer or even it could be simpler than that, a chiller of some kind that has menus and a, a computer and a brain and you have to figure out how to make it do this and that. People that just start pushing buttons. People that just start going through the menus and changing stuff. And then Without they back what they're out doing, really. and, like, and they don't know what they're doing. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. And I'm holding the manual, right? I want to, so that kind of thing, people that don't respect um, very expensive lab equipment um, and they just go smashing their fingers into the buttons, but also just any of the adjusters. I don't like when people just run their palm on a micrometer to, instead of using your fingers to turn it like a human being, but like ramming your 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 paw on it to spin the the handle that's knurled so, so right. you can grab it with your fingers, but they're like, they want to get there faster this way. Yeah. And this motion, and I'm like, oh boy, I <laughs> need to either leave or do, I don't know. I can see that grating on you mentally, just thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm already not feeling great about this now. <laughs> Just kidding, but speeds of sweater coming off your forehead here. Right, because I've never been anyone's direct boss. 
So I have to ask them, please don't do that. Please do it the right way. Or you don't say something like do it the right way. So you have to keep relationships sure. and, and at yeah. work. Yeah. You can't do it like you yell at your little brother. <laughs> okay. So how about the opposite? Something that, that brings you joy as an engineer? Brings me joy as an engineer is presenting great data in a meeting and a review, like a design review to people that were not involved in my project, but we all, they were all going to share and like, we all, everyone wants to know how's that project going, Sean, we're going to, you know, the meeting you're going to present and I prepare my PowerPoint and I show up and I have good data to present and I, and I, and I, I have a style that I work, you know, I, I take great photographs with my phone when I'm in the lab and I, you know, I can, I'll edit the photographs and put the arrows where they go and show, I mean, glowing crystals that are making a laser beam output, you know, and I'll, I love, so I love putting together really good presentations and I love, uh, presenting. Um, another thing we talked about a little bit before the show is that you are also a musician, uh, singer, songwriter, and has being a musician helped you with presenting as an engineer? Um, I, maybe so. I've, I've, I've been doing open mic nights around, um, you know, Phoenix for a couple of years now. And, um, that puts you up in front of people and talking and, um, I, it, it might because performing, that's just another way of performing, um, playing music for people or presenting, you know, quite different, but still performing is there. Um, I'm not sure, but I probably this is something more that I the confidence in presenting had to grow with my um my seasoning in engineering and knowing what I'm talking about after more years that I have experience um in this profession so as my I wasn't always like that so it was what I'm getting at yeah that so my confidence level rose and then I've had some really great um at compound photonics you know we we, we I really conducted some great projects to very successful ends in unknown environment space that I was working in and can it be done very well? And then I, meaning that then after my lone wolf um, period in the lab and reaching out when I need help, when things I don't know, I need some wire bonding done. I need some gold wire bonds. I need something redone. Uh, measured whatever people help you but then i'm on critical path right and um that carrying that through uh is just really exciting and really rewarding and fulfilling and you get this great sense of i earned my money today that's a good feeling for sure well is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you think listeners ought to know about your experience your insights into the industry, anything else that comes to mind? Yeah, it's, uh, just just have a free open mind about it and be determined to look deeply into your projects and your interest level. Sometimes you have to artificially make it high because you may not love your project sometimes, but learn how to really get your your focus and Reach out for help when you need it, but just thinking, thinking, stopping to think is really important. You will come up with ideas that you didn't know you had when you think about it, but you have to have some understanding of it to be able to think about it. Back to calculus and things like that, that's a, that teaches students how to think. It's not that you're going to be writing uh, derivations on your desk because you're not. You don't do that. After you leave college, I don't think anyone ever does that anymore. Don't drink and derive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the best engineering joke I think I've heard all year. <laughs> don't drink and derive. <laughs> you heard it here, folks, on the Being an Engineer podcast from Sean Patterson. <laughs> Correct. Uh, I think that's a really good point you make about learning how to think. And I'm not sure I've ever thought about it that way. So that was insightful for me to hear. I know for sure that one of the most important things I took away from my college education was learning how to think critically, analytically. But I don't know that I ever thought about, okay, exactly how did I learn that? 
And I think you make a really good point that it's like, you know, doing the, the, the math problems, the physics problems, the fluid dynamics problems. It's, it's, yeah, you might use that someday, maybe. Shocker, I have not, like ever really. But going through that process over and over and over does teach you how to think analytically. And I think that's one of the huge benefits of being an engineer. It is. You, you use it, hopefully, in all aspects of your life because it is a tool and it's a powerful tool. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been delightful, Sean. How can people get in touch with you? Um, I can be emailed at engineering solutions by sp at gmail.com. Um, SP for Sean Patterson. And um, that's a, you can find me on link, LinkedIn. I am Sean Patrick Patterson, or I use my middle name. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm active on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, I love reading articles there. And so, yeah, they can find me there. Terrific. All right. And my musicianship, um, that's a kind of a different angle of, but I, I use engineering and, and, and writing songs and audio engineering software for recording and um, sound, microphones, equipment, electronics. It all comes into play. Audio interface for your computers um, to produce music. So I can also be reached at the music style I make is called Rustic Rock Music. And my website is called rusticrockmusic.com. And that's just another, uh, that's the other side of me is the musician, songwriter, acoustic guitar player, harmonica, singer. Um, I really enjoy that a lot. So, um, yeah, I have, I have a home life with my wife. I make music. She's my editor for music and uh, she helps me really develop my ideas. And then, um, I love engineering. That's awesome. And you're on Spotify as a musician as well. Is yes. That right? Um, I use my mother's maiden name, which is Sinoe. So it's S I N O H U I, but I use my first name, Sean. So Sean Sinoe on Spotify, Apple, iTunes, everywhere that you can stream music, you'll find uh, about seven or eight of my songs. Terrific. Great. Well, I hope you get some new listeners. Well, that and, would be wonderful. Uh, and thank you so much, Sean, for being on the show today. What, what a, a pleasure it was to talk with you. <laughs> great. I had a really great time, Aaron. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please share the episode. To learn how your team can leverage our team's expertise developing turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines, and with product design, visit us at teampipeline.us. Thanks for listening.